I'm a human too, right? So when I go into You're not an alien? <laughs> no, I'm not an alien. I'm not a robot. When I enter a room or go to an event, it can be hard sometimes for me to feel like everyone I'm meeting might want something from me, whether it's funding or a job or a connection here or there. So to try to, even if there is something you ultimately would like from the person, to try to let that drop and just have a human connection, I think that's really important if you just run into VCs in the wild, call it, is to, yes, we like to talk about work and we're busy people, so you want to squeeze in your pitch while you can, but it actually might serve you better to just have a re memorable, relatable experience and then hit them up later via email or something like that. On this episode of Austinpreneur, we share a conversation recorded at Austin Startup Week with Claire Hansen who was recently promoted to partner at Firebrand Ventures. Claire is a leader in the Austin startup community and has worked alongside founders and investors here since 2015. Claire's first role in venture was at Capital Factory. And from there, she led the Central Texas Angel Network before working for the Army Applications Lab inside Army Futures Command. Claire received her master's in organizational communication from Texas A&M University and a bachelor's in the same subject from Pepperdine. Sit back, relax, and learn about Claire's path to partner on this episode of Austinpreneur. Welcome to Austinpreneur, our show about the stories that made Austin, Texas a global hub for startups. The show is produced by Capital Factory and hosted by me, Nick Spiller. As a reminder, by joining Capital Factory, you can plug into the ecosystem where the stories on the show were set. Learn more about us at CapitalFactory.com. Hello, entrepreneurs and everyone who loves them. Thanks for listening to this startup-focused podcast. And if you want even more amazing startup content, the Nick plans to attend South by Southwest 24, which runs March 8th through 15th here in Austin, Texas. Much of the amazing startup content occurs in the appropriately named Startup Track, which runs Saturday, March 9th through Monday, March 11th. Another can't-miss experience is a South by Southwest pitch competition, which brings together 60 of the world's top startups on Saturday, March 9th and Sunday, March 10th. Be at the Startup Track south by southwest pitch or any of the thousands and thousands of other events that make march magic in austin so special south by southwest is one of the planet's top destinations to discover new ideas new business models new markets new innovators and new talent as well as make some incredible new connections always find the most information about south by southwest at www.sxsw.com All right. Well, Claire, welcome to Austinpreneur. It's good to, to have you here. Why don't you just start? Tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how you ended up in Austin. Oh, yeah, that's a great question. So I grew up in Las Vegas, Nevada. So we were just talking about F1 and Super Bowl and all that right. craziness happening there. Right. I grew up there. <laughs> Sounds um, like an interesting place to grow up. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations, I, by the way, on, on making it through. Getting out, I don't know surviving. If I, yeah, I, don't, I feel like if I was born in Vegas, I wouldn't wouldn't be here right now, for yeah. sure, at least in this, this, this <laughs> particular spot. Luckily for me, I made it out. Yeah, I, I grew up in a pretty, like, suburban experience. If you've ever been to Phoenix, it probably felt a lot like that. Like, desert, it's hot, but, but I was in a 
about 10 miles from the Strip in a suburban neighborhood. Some interesting things, like when I got into college, uh, I'd bring friends back home for spring break or whatever, and they'd be like, wow, like, your movie theater is in a casino, or you have slot machines in your grocery store, and things like that that always felt just normal to me. But I, the, to the second part of your question, I ended up in Texas for grad school. I went to Texas A&M. Don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm cool with it. It's, it's... Yeah, I went to Texas A&M for grad school. And so for those that don't know, it's almost two hours east of here. So I had checked out Austin a few times when I was in, in grad school and decided to move here when I finished. Although I had a really hard time getting a job here, so I actually moved to the Bay Area for a little while first, and then ended up coming back here oh, to Texas, really? to Austin. Yeah. Interesting. I don't know yeah. if I knew how long we were in the Bay for. Just about nine months. I ended up taking an internship out there to get some more experience on my resume that wasn't academic, and I was like, maybe I'll like San Francisco and stay, but it didn't end up being exactly what I was looking for. Packed up my Honda Civic and <laughs> made the drive out here and. and been here ever since. And what did you study at A&M? I studied communication. So yeah. I have a bachelor's and a master's in communication. Yeah. Yeah. And when did you hone in on venture and startups? Yeah, it wasn't really on purpose until it was. So I probably didn't really hone in on it until maybe 2019. So when I initially moved here, I didn't know what I wanted to do or like what industries I wanted to be in. I thought I'd want to work in tech more broadly, but with communication degrees. I didn't really know what that meant. thought it might mean marketing. I thought it might mean some sort of like people operations or recruiting role. But I applied for a bunch of those jobs and didn't get them. <laughs> and I just got, we can dive deeper into it, but I just got really fortunate that the first job that I had that I did get an offer for was here at Capital Factory. So to me, it was more of just a job. It wasn't really, I didn't view it as an entry point into venture or into startups at the time. I was just happy to have a paycheck and like a place to go from nine to five. <laughs> Interesting. So you were not really looking to break in to, to venture the startup scene. How did you get connected with, with Capital Factory? Yeah. How did that all happen? Yeah. So basically, I, as I mentioned, I was applying to all sorts of jobs. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was getting told no a lot, and I, I was just fortunate enough that one hiring manager I interviewed with told me no, but he said, but if you come across anything you, in our network that we can be helpful with or provide you with a referral, we're happy to do that. And of course, a lot of people say that, so I was just kind of like, thank you, I'll try, we'll see if I ever hear from this person again. And a few weeks later, I sent him a job that I that happened to be like within his network, at least it appeared so on LinkedIn. And I said, hey, Brian, can you refer me to this job? And he said, I'm not gonna refer you to that job. But he said, but I heard of a different job that you'd be really great for. And he happened to be a mentor here hmm. at Capital Factory. And it was- at Brian Manel? No, Brian. I wish, okay. different yeah, Brian, right. different Brian, Brian Parks. And uh, he happened to be a mentor here and Capital Factory was still small enough that they were doing all of their hiring basically through the, net, the mentor network. So it wasn't even a posted job. And so I applied for that one and I got it. That's nice. how I Nice, broke so you were referred in by a mentor. And yep. why did he think you were perfect for 
for the role. You'd have to ask Brian, but he was a big, even when I was interviewing with him, he was a big proponent of what, yeah. what y'all were doing. And yeah. just as me being like a new young person in Austin had referred me to come check things out here. Or if I was, if I continued struggling to find a job, he thought of Capital Factory as a resource. So he had mentioned it before. And then, so I think he was basically just a fan. Yeah. And as somehow he connected the dots that it would be a, a fit for me. So lucky, very lucky there. Yeah. And what was the startup community and Capital Factory like back back then? Yeah, so when I joined in 2015, it looked a lot different than it does today. We had the 16th floor, and I think we had, maybe we, we got the 5th floor at the time I was the there. The 7th floor we had We had like a, a weird wing on the 7th floor. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No one knows about the 7th floor. Space. No one knows so about the 7th floor. Weird things happen. No, I'm just kidding. Nothing weird happened there. It was just very, it was much more corporate than the rest of Capital Factory because we didn't quite like bling it out like the rest of the space. That was like right when we were starting to do the corporate stuff. Or like, I, I think, think so. Chelsea, Ciardelli. Yeah. Like, yeah, just yeah. got hired and she was yeah. like our first corporate manager. Definitely. None of this stuff here on the first floor that, that most people see. Not, we didn't have any at the time. And it was a pretty small team. I think to, in total there were about 20 employees. I was one of two employees that reported to the fund directly. And then the rest of the staff reported to Georgia Thompson at the time, which was more of known as like the real estate side of the business. I think now today it's one organization. But back then, it was just me working more on the operations of the accelerator and the fund and one person doing deal sourcing for the fund, J.D. Weinstein, who's now at Oracle. And we reported directly to Josh. So it was a really unique opportunity. And what was the, the fund doing? What did it look like at that time? Yeah, I don't... If I don't want to misquote, so you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, you might remember this I, history a little better than I did. But, but the fund at the time... They did some opportunity investments outside of the accelerator, but the part I was most involved with was, like I said, helping manage the operations of the accelerator. And at the time, as an accelerator company, if you could raise a certain amount of money from uh, essentially mentors in the Capital mm -hmm. Factory Network, if you could raise, I think it was you needed at least two 25K checks yep. from, from mentors in the network. Capital Factory would match that. I think 50K or 100K? I think it was 100. Okay, so that would unlock money. Essentially, your angel checks would unlock money from Capital Factory, and then the money from Capital Factory would unlock co-investments from Silverton and Floodgate, two big VC firms. So I think in total, companies could make out with like 20, or sorry, 200 or 250, does that sound right? Yeah, you of got that the, sort of the, the two mentors, yeah, and that was like, became the game, is to get the two mentors to write the check, and, and it created this interesting environment that we've evolved beyond, but right. yeah, and you were able to then trigger a couple, basically three, well, you count us as an institutional fund or not, then Silverton and, and Floodgate. That's right. And do you remember like the big unicorn that came out of that program? No, I guess? don't. Can anybody else guess? Was it Audrey? WP Engine? Was that one? Close. Not quite through that program. Okay. Zen Business. Oh, Zen yeah. Business came and through. Yeah, and so if anyone... <laughs> you were? It would have been a great guess. No, yeah. J.C. Glancy had started unsuccessfully six companies before he started what is now Zen Business and joined the program. Uh, Ross Burdorf was one of our mentors. He had recently sold HomeAway to Expedia doing well and JC I think had like a lot of meetings where he did not get funded um, from the mentors and then Ross said like yes I'm in but also I'm gonna be your new CEO <laughs> make this a unicorn 
uh, and the rest is yeah. Rest is I do I do remember meeting JC around the ecos like around the 16th floor really, but I I don't remember. It's funny. I remember more back then. I wasn't necessarily evaluating businesses. I just remember people as like humans, which is nice, but a little different than than some of the relationships I have now. So I remember him being a friendly guy that was like around and, and right. would share a beer with me after after work sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Hustler, yeah, and oh, I think the deterministic path to funding of that was like ultimately like we had twice as many companies get half as much money, and we've, we like we need to help them get millions and millions of dollars is what it's what it's become, and we've we've evolved into a more flexible model where we can still add value through what's our all access program, the value added type type deal, and then we we invest out of a separate separate vehicle. Awesome, and then and I remember yeah meeting you through that while I was doing something. Maybe at Favor. Maybe, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was when I was at Favor, and, and I think it was through through JD and introduced us. Um, yeah, but I didn't really get to know you until you came back to work at Capital Factory for the Central Texas Angel Network. Right. And which you led for, how long were you at CTAM for? About two and a half years. Nice. One year as an associate, maybe a little over a year as an associate, and then the, the other half of my time was as an investment director. Got it. Got it. Mm-hmm. And... We have Gary Forney, the chairman of CTAN, coming in tomorrow for the show, so we won't go too deep into Ooh, it. But, yeah, that will be fun um, to listen to. We can maybe yeah, warm, warm up a little bit. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know, what is CTAN and what's, what's its role in the, the ecosystem? Yeah, yes. And again, there's a ton of history behind this organization that I feel like even when I worked there, I didn't quite have down just right, so I'm going to try not to go too, too deep. <laughs> I'll let Gary do that. But I always knew CTAN when I was working at Capital Factory as I, it's an angel network, so the Central Texas Angel Network, or CTAN for short, and it was a good source of funding for companies that weren't quite ready for either pitching to venture capital firms or specifically were looking for a different type of funding. Not every company is built for venture capital, so it would attract a lot of companies that only wanted to work with angel investors. And it filled a really unique gap for a long time before there were seed and pre-seed funds uh, really active in the Austin ecosystem. So at the time I was there, we had anywhere between 150 and 200 members at any given time, and members were uh, active angel investors. The vast majority of them based here in Austin, but, but a few of them out of state or maybe in San Antonio, that sort of thing. And during my years there, we were deploying 10 to $15 million a year mm-hmm. from those angels into early stage companies, of all different types. So anything from early stage pharma to like still Austin, the whiskey distillery to B2B SaaS. That's where I got a lot of my experience and that's sort of the, the gap they were filling at yeah. that time. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs raising from angel investors specifically? Yeah, I think if you're looking at individual angel investors, of course, trying to find people that have relevant experience or knowledge set that's applicable to your business is helpful because it's going to save you a lot of time if people like get it (laughs) if they get your business if they get your customer if they get your market so that's number one but i would say more broadly with angel networks i think it can be challenging to sometimes figure out uh, what value they provide beyond potentially maybe getting a check throughout their process. So I would just, as you look at angel networks, try to find, like really study each one's process because they're all different and, and find the value along the way in their process. For instance, at CTAN, 
a big part of our process at the time was to give each company, it was like speed dating or like kind of like an epic office hours idea where the companies would meet directly with the angels and get one-on-one time Mm. with folks. So I would always say like, hey, even if you don't make it to the end of the process and raise your whole round from us, maybe you'll make a good connection. If not in that speed in that speed dating process, you might make a good connection there and that person can always follow up with you. Or maybe you'll get, at least you'll get some feedback directly from angels. So that's what I would say in general, if you're looking at angel networks specifically, is to try to figure out what the value might be along the path mm. toward the end of their process, because not all the companies will make it toward the end of their process. Just look for the value points along the way. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how you can turn no's into yeses and failures and opportunities whether totally. it's a, a job that you didn't get or an investor that didn't invest you can have one mindset or the other and, and walk away in a worse spot or walk away with, with a new direction that you need to go and, and totally and the nice thing with angel investors is even if they don't write a check they might become a customer they might know a customer they there are a lot of ways that they can add value beyond just potentially like a 10 or 25k yeah. check yeah. so yeah. all right and now you're at firebrand cool name by the way thank you how did you end up at, at that firm that is a good question. This, the long story short is that I, I got a LinkedIn message one day that said, hey, Claire, my name's John. I'm a partner at a, at a fund. We're looking for someone in Austin. Are you interested? <laughs> so I just got really fortunate there that, that they reached out to me cold, basically, and, and we your, developed your a relationship. Your personal brand had reached them. Exactly, right? like had, exactly. I guess that you were at CTAN at the time. And like, I like actually wasn't like, at CTAN really, anymore. After, yeah. yeah, so I had, um, I was at CTAN into, the, into 2020, so into the pandemic. And at that time, a lot of investment, as everyone knows, initially slowed down, stopped, halted. And um, especially in the angel space, we weren't really sure when angel investors would be comfortable investing again. I had already been thinking it might be time for me to move on. Uh, I was worried that maybe my pay would get cut because I wasn't working that much, as you can understand. We weren't holding as many cycles or events. So I actually had taken a job working for the Army. If you remember. I remember that now. I forgot you worked <laughs> yeah. for the Army. Yeah, I worked for the Army Applications Missed Lab. That in my notes. Their office is also here at Capital Factory, so I spent a lot of my you career here. three jobs here. you worked at Capital Factory. Wow. Exactly. I took the, the role working for the Army Applications Lab because I thought it would help my network of VCs. I thought maybe I was going to get an MBA at that point to try to get a job working for a VC. It was a nine to five kind of job. It was like a three-year contract or a term position. So I knew at that time in 2020 when everyone was freaking out that I had a job for three years. That was really important to me at that time. So it was while I was at the Army, actually, uh, that Chris and John right. from Firebrand found uh, me. Yeah. So tell us more about Chris and John and how Firebrand started. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's an interesting story. So my partner... Uh, first of all, I'm the only partner based here in Austin. I'm the only team member based in Austin. I work for two general partners, one of whom is based in Boulder, Colorado, Chris, and one is based in Kansas City. His name's John. John founded Firebrand as a sole GP, so it was just him in the beginning with Fund Really, out of a need, he saw a need for companies to get funded in the Midwest specifically. He was a Techstars managing director prior to founding Firebrand, and he was finding that even his best performing companies were having to move to the coast to get funding. And they weren't just taking checks from 
the coast and staying in Kansas City. They were literally leaving at the time. <laughs> and uh, of course, he, he didn't like to see that. So he founded Firebrand with a pretty, pretty uh, big focus on investing specifically in the Midwest, seed stage companies, trying to keep them there and, and um, grow the ecosystem in that sense. So John deployed Firebrand One as a sole GP. Uh, during that time, our partner Chris in Boulder also had a fund. He was a sole GP of his own fund called Blue Note Ventures. And Chris was also highly involved in the Techstars network. So he and John went way back and as GPs, sole GPs of their own funds, they looked at a ton of deal flow together, co-invested in multiple companies together, commiserated over the pains of being a sole GP. So when it came time to raise Firebrand 2, it's actually interesting. John already had a decent amount committed to Firebrand 2. Chris already had a decent amount committed to Blue Note 2. And they decided to combine forces at that point and convince their LPs that this was a good idea yeah. to, to combine. Chris and, Chris and John did that. It must have been like 2019 or so. Yeah. And we started deploying out of Firebrand 2 in early 2020. Got it. Okay. And how do they choose Blue Note versus Firebrand? I think Firebrand technically was a larger fund, and, and John had, like, if you look at our LP base, we have majority of our LPs are based in Kansas City. I, I think the majority of our funds were coming from Firebrand. Yeah. That's a good question, though. We should ask Chris. Pick yeah, his I'm brain curious. next time I, he's in town. I feel like it's a much better name. No, no, offense, to, no, no offense to... Oh, I'm telling Chris. You can, I mean... <laughs> I don't, I don't know Chris. I know John, so <laughs> stay on the right side, as long as I know you. And then what are you investing in from a, from a company standpoint, technology standpoint? Sure. Yeah. Well, as I mentioned, we're a seed-focused fund, so we write our initial checks into seed stage, which, as you guys know right now, it's quite, quite a breadth of <laughs> stage of company, anywhere from a, a few K in MRR a month. Uh, up to like a million in ARR can be considered seed stage these days. But anyhow, we focus on the seed stage, more of that go-to-market exploration stage. We're generalists within software. It could be B2C, it could be B2B. We tend to focus more on B2B companies. We're more familiar with those business models. Uh, we're better at helping guide them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but within B2B even, we're generalists. So you'll see a little bit of everything in our portfolio. Things that I like to look at are cybersecurity, data management plays, API layer businesses, anything in those general buckets that are raising at a seed seed round Duff. like to look at. Yeah, it's the sexy stuff, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and what do you look for in, in a founder? Like what's, especially like maybe early on in the process, what are some of the things that you, you yeah, like to see? Yeah, it's hard to quantify at a seed stage. I would say like, it, you've probably heard this before, but we look for every meeting to feel better and better about the business. And that includes feeling better and better about the founder. So we really look for founders who are interested in having a relationship period with their VCs. Some companies are not, which is fair too, but uh, open to having a relationship opening open to that relationship being pretty transparent and human that's really our ethos as people and internally so we try to bring that to the relationship with founders and it's nice to find founders who, who want to match that and are looking for for the for the same type of relationship of course we look for grit determination authenticity all of those things as well but it's really it, it comes down oftentimes to a gut feeling and like 
is this someone we get along with? Is this someone we believe in? And is this someone we can work with for the next 10 yeah. plus years? Yeah. So it's about building this relationship, having a gen, you know, back and forth. And why, why are relationships so important to you and maybe just broadly in the, the startup? Sure. Scene? Yeah, well, I can tell like a little bit more about my story is basically that every job I've had has been um, thanks to a great relationship in my life. Capital Factory, we talked about me getting like referred here by, by a kind hiring manager that turned me down, but, but was still help, willing to be helpful. The role at CTAN, I was also referred to that role by a mentor at Capital Factory. Similar with the Army, I knew them from officing next to them and had some good relationships there. And then with Firebrand, to your point, I had the, the network and had built the social capital to vouch for me, even being in Austin and the firm being based elsewhere. In general, relationships have been super important to me in my, my career, for sure. I think in venture, it's, it's similarly helpful because it's a small world. We see the same. I see founders now come pitch me that I met in 2015 at Capital Factory that are now working on something else and something new. And similarly, even if they're not working for a company, maybe they're working for a service provider or are a subject matter expert in something where I need help diligencing and can go back to those people because we have a relationship and, and ask for help or vice versa. Super important just from like an overall network aspect of, of that's really what makes the ecosystem churn and mm -hmm. makes the ecosystem work. Right, kind of opens, opens the doors and creates that, that network. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. What advice do you have for founders looking to build relationships with investors, VCs that are you know hard to reach, super busy, lots of founders reaching out? Like, what, what, how do you break through? Yeah, that? yeah. I think the first thing, and and this is like a Claire comment. This isn't necessarily a general comment, <laughs> but I, I'm a human too, right? So when I go into You're not an alien, <laughs> no, I'm not an alien. I'm not a robot. When I enter a room or go to an event, it can be hard sometimes for me to feel like everyone I'm meeting might want something from me, whether it's funding or a job or a connection here or there. So to try to, even if there is something you ultimately would like from the person, to try to let that drop and just have a human connection, I think that's really important if you just run into VCs in the wild, call it, is to Yes, we like to talk about work and we're busy people, so you want to squeeze in your pitch while you can, but it actually might serve you better to just have a re memorable, relatable mm -hmm. experience and then hit them up later via email or something like that. So that would be number one if you do happen to, like, like I said, meet people in the wild. I think secondly is just, and I'm seeing this especially right now, I think there's some founders out there fundraising that might be a little discouraged by the market. And don't get me wrong, that's a completely fair reaction. But I, I see a lot of founders coming to meetings where I can feel that they're discouraged and they're like, well, we're probably not a fit for you. We're probably too early for you. I see in your portfolio you don't really invest in our type of business. That, that I would say, like, get rid of that. Um, <laughs> and uh, go into every meeting assuming that if a VC is taking the time, even if it's a 15 minute intro call or a 15 minute coffee chat, whatever it is, that there's a reason that they said yes and take advantage of that time, right? That's your time to pitch right yeah. there. Um, and pitch as if this is the one check and the one call that's gonna make the difference in your fundraise. Um, so I would say try to establish that human connection go into the conversations if you do get them, hopefully, because again, even if they're not the ones that are gonna write you that check, 
they might introduce you to someone if they like you, but they can't invest for whatever reason or if it's not a fit for whatever reason. They probably have lots of VC friends who might be a better fit. Right. right. So it's create the relationship, but then once you have, once they're listening, take it seriously, give them the pitch. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just say also, like, this might sound stupid, but be professional. Like yeah. some, and yeah. again, it can be hard to be super positive and bubbly and like, oh, thank you for telling me no. Thank you for the feedback. Of course, like we know that's not always how <laughs> folks are genuinely feeling, but but leaving leaving the door open for a relationship and positive feeling is more important, I think, than anything. Because right. you're like going into this for the long haul. And if you invest right. in the founder's company, like it's like, hey, I'm... We're family now for a long time, and, yeah. and we want it to be be enjoyable. That's right. Yeah. We'd love for it to be enjoyable. <laughs> awesome. Well, I'm gonna open it up to our our studio audience. <laughs> Maybe one more question before I do. You mentioned it's not. It, it's understandable to say this is a tough time to raise money. It certainly is. Yeah. What other advice do you have for entrepreneurs going out to raise in, in this this market? Yeah, definitely a couple things. Again, they might sound obvious, but plan for it to take longer than than you normally would. Uh, we see raises taking longer than six months. I know six months used to be like, oh, like no problem. You can pull a seed, seed round together in six months. I think uh, planning in three quarters, if not four, is ideal. And that can be hard because four quarters out, you might not quite have the traction, the VCs want to see, they take the meeting. So it can, it's, it can definitely be a battle. And I understand that. But, um, but starting earlier, I would say like triple the pipeline of VCs you're talking to. Because even if you get commitments, we're seeing a lot of commitment shift. Once closing times come, closing time comes for rounds, we're seeing some funds having I don't know, trouble with capital calls or sometimes it, capital calls ourselves can take a little bit longer v- than VCs they used to. VCs are raising money. It's hard for VCs too. Right. Yeah, it's hard for us too. We're fundraising ourselves, but even once we have LPs, like some of them don't want to part with that that call cash right away. Right. There's just a lot of variables at play. So uh, double, if not triple your pipeline of VCs you're talking to mm-hmm. and hope that again, even if someone on that list mm-hmm. isn't going to be the one for you, that you're broadening your network just by having yeah, those conversations. Building those relationships, turning, exactly. turning no's into yes. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Who has a question for Claire? <laughs> Hello, entrepreneurs and everyone who loves them. Thanks for listening to this Startup Focus podcast. And if you want even more amazing startup content, then make plans to attend South by Southwest 24, which runs March 8th through 15th here in Austin, Texas. Much of the amazing startup content occurs in the appropriately named Startup Track, which runs Saturday, March 9th through Monday, March 11th. Another can't-miss experience is a South by Southwest pitch competition, which brings together 60 of the world's top startups on Saturday, March 9th and Sunday, March 10th. Be at the Startup Track, South by Southwest pitch, or any of the thousands and thousands of other events that make March Magic in Austin so special, South by Southwest is one of the planet's top destinations to discover new ideas, new business models, new markets, new innovators, and new talent, as well as make some incredible new connections. Always find the most information about South by Southwest at www.sxsw.com. Hey, 
proud to see you as a tech writer. Thank you. It's such a small population that, so we just love to hear what advice you Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I think for, I don't know if this applies to all women, probably not. We're not a monolith, it turns out, but I think in general, and you know what, this is, this is advice I would give to anyone, but I think especially women or people that have a non-traditional background that are trying to get into VC is just like, figure out what you're good at, irrespective of venture, right? Like I was never, <laughs> I was never like a super great, like financial modeler. So I wasn't, <laughs> instead of spending time, years, like learning how to be an expert at financial modeling because I thought that would get me the job. I said, no, 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 what am I actually really good at? And what I'm really good at or a lot better at than financial modeling is developing relationships, looking at people in the eye and having a real human connection with them. And like I said, that's what kind of got me where I am today. I'm not saying that everyone needs to follow that path and networking isn't gonna get everyone the job of their dreams or a job in venture per se, but it's to find your kind of superpower and, and over time figure out a way to leverage that into a role that you want. I would also say, I would just add for women specifically, that there are a lot of VC firms that have cultures that women don't want to be a part of. And that's okay. There are tons of other firms out there, I'm proud to say, Firebrand is one that welcome diverse perspectives, that welcome things that women in particular enjoy, like more flexibility, potential like good work-life balance. So I would just say like, don't be discouraged by like the, the culture's like stereotype of what working at a VC can look like. They look all sorts of different ways. Once, once you've met one VC, you've only met one VC firm and you can find fits that work for you. Hi, I'm Monica, also SVB. So I just actually came from an accelerator, another accelerator, but I've come to CF and other places and the, the common question or the common, the common conversation that we have is that when you're doing these pitch conversations, it's widely said that it's a two-way street. So when a founder has all these conversations, how much do you want for them to have read up on Firebrand? What kind of questions do you want them to be asking you so that it feels like a two-way street? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's an interesting balance. I, I think the most common way founders approach that is by looking at your portfolio on your website and saying like, oh, I see you, you must really like cybersecurity. You guys invested in three. I'm like, yeah, we, we might have invested in three, but that doesn't mean we want to invest in a fourth. Maybe three was enough, right? So I think that that's a common way. It's, and, and that is a good way to at least show us like, hey, you've taken an interest in, in who we are and looked at our website. I think if you wanted to go a step beyond that to the degree possible is, and, and I think this would work better in the reverse actually, is meeting founders that you love that have good relationships with their VCs and then going after those VCs per se, instead of the opposite way of like looking at our portfolio and then trying to like contact our portfolio. But I think that's actually a better way for founders to get to know what they want to know is by actually talking to other founders. So I would actually be probably more interested if I was talking to a company for the first time and they said like, oh, I just talked to Raphael from Judy Security. I'm like, oh, I know Raphael. Like that's an immediate connection hmm. if, if they know one of our portfolio companies. That could be a good way to show that you've like done a little bit of research 
in general, I don't expect companies to do a ton of research on us just because it's harder to look, it's harder to find information on VCs. And I know that like chances are all they're going to know about me is what's on our website and what's on our website is pretty general, right? So personally, I don't expect them to come in being an expert on like what we've done before. I like it when they ask questions. Like I said, human questions even, where are you from? What did you do like before Firebrand? That sort of thing that can be nice for me, but I don't expect them to be an expert on who we are, what we're looking for, that sort of thing. Hope that's helpful. I always recommend that founders listen to a podcast that VCs have been on and ask, <laughs> ask follow-up questions. Hi, Claire. Uh, Kurt Bonance with Applied General Intelligence. And what's been your biggest um, surprise or uh, what you didn't expect becoming a VC now that you're the expert and have always experienced? Maybe that's the biggest surprise is that you're not really an expert <laughs> in anything. You're not you, supposed to tell them that. <laughs> you learn that very quickly, especially as a generalist. Like, I don't know that that was really a surprise for me per se, because coming from CTAN, of course, I knew that I was working with a lot of experts, the angel investors I was working with there. But yeah, you. I'm surprised at, I would say, I consider myself maybe in an expert of like seed stage specifically and like motions that need to take place at the seed stage. But the biggest surprise to me is no matter how many companies I talk to in a certain industry or vertical or market, how little I really know. <laughs> and so that's, it's always a humbling experience to be in, in calls with founders who are asking for my advice where you are the true expert actually. And so we started deploying our fund in our current fund in, fund in 2020. So we are nearing the end. We've hopefully it's happening as we speak, closing an investment our 19th out of this fund. Mm. Uh, we'll probably do, I don't know, call it three to five more, kind of depending on the check size and the stage. So we are nearing the end of our fund, and we will be fundraising soon, but I have not fundraised yet. We've been, we initially thought we'd be fundraising much sooner, given the pace of investment in, say, 2021 into early 2022. We thought we'd be raising a fund over a year ago now, and that's been delayed, 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 just as the pace of investment slowed. It's been interesting. Initially, I thought I would still be a principal in our next fund and help from the sidelines and help with the, you know, the deck and <laughs> taking notes and those sorts of things. Now that I've been promoted, I'll, I'll have an, an active role in fundraising the next, the next fund. We, as a $40 million fund, we uh, raise money primarily from high net worth individuals and family offices. So luckily for me, actually, my experience working at an angel network gives me a few relationships that I can work off of, again, even if they're not the ones that are going to become LPs. It's a few networks that I can break into that, fingers crossed, <laughs> that, that works out. But it also gives me a, a certain degree of comfort in, in having those conversations. Of course, gives me a ton of empathy even more empathy than I had before hearing hearing founders pitch to us all day. Maybe we'll we'll have a another podcast when we close fund three and, and I can tell you how it yeah, went. <laughs> let's let's we'll follow up on that. Yeah, sure. yeah, yeah. Great question though. Yeah. Corey in the back. Hi, Corey Bray from CoachCRM.com. With B2B software becoming more and more about how the Lego pieces are fit together 
less about the creation of the Lego pieces, where business founders have the opportunity to, to take a lot of things that exist out in the world, put them together to solve unique puzzles for customers and create a lot of value. What's your take on non-technical founders that leverage contract labor, resources, third-party tools, and how does that impact your ability to make investment decisions in them versus somebody that traditionally would have built everything in-house? We've made a few pre-seed investments where there was maybe a sole founder or two non-technical co-founders. But when we're investing at the like more of a true seed stage, there historically we have invested in teams that have a, a CTO or a technical uh, founder of some sort. Um, so we still look for that in a founding team. I guess it would be unusual for me to come across a team at the certain traction level that we look for that wouldn't have a technical co-founder or, or a technical lead at that point, even if they're not holding a CTO title. I think though, in, to the broader question of stitching technical solutions together, especially with like open AI and generative, generative AI and all these LLMs that are coming out, there are certain areas where we don't expect companies to like build, build a new wheel. And, and at least in the early stages, it makes a lot of sense to leverage existing technology and not build it from the ground up. So I think it's more about the business case of how much would it cost for you, like build versus buy decision that we talk about a lot when it comes to customers, actually like applying that internally. So I think for us, if we came across a company that didn't have a technical founder, was was using a lot of like no code, low code or, or existing solutions, that would, that would be what it would come down to is actually like making sure it made sense from a financial perspective, build versus buy internally. So I don't know, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 You gotta, ultimately it's like a tech company's gotta like build technology. Right. Right. At like the end of the day, if you're not like don't have the ability to build tech, then like you're going to end up on some other category when you go public, and your multiples will be way lower. And like, right. But that doesn't mean you have to be building it all from day one. Right. Yeah. Like, no. Totally. That's yeah. Probably. Yeah. Does that answer your question, or does is there a piece I missed there? No, that's good. How's it going to change ten years from now? Oh, geez, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not in the prediction-making business. Yeah. We'll see. No, we'll see. Argue if, you can, if it's okay, it's a thought experiment. If it's okay to outsource the hard stuff, LLM, for example, then why wouldn't it be okay to outsource the easy stuff? Right, right. <laughs> we'll find out. Ten, let's have a podcast reunion 10 years from now. I we hope so. We can answer that I, one. If, I, if I'm still doing this in 10 years, I'd be very happy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we'll see. Got it. Hey, Joey? Joey, I'm Stephanie here from Embed, where Rob Metals distributor, changing the metals game. Uh, question for you, though, you touched on this, and you, you mentioned you guys are doing some pre-seed investing. It seems like we've gotten to a point where a lot of the seed round firms are also starting to do some pre-seed. There's almost this overlap between the angel rounds and the angel network mm -hmm. rounds and some of the seed rounds going pre-seed. I'd love to hear your take on is that's going to happen more. Are you guys more embracing these kind of intermediary rounds? And should your take on that? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. So I would say we probably invest in fewer pre-seed rounds today than we did say during 2021 when the market was so competitive you felt like you just like had to get in early to get a shot at all so for us being a seed focused fund we're actually playing more now to your point of these like gray area 
raises, we're playing probably more upstream a little bit into more of the seed plus rounds or seed extension rounds. In terms of overall like funds being interested earlier stage, yeah, a lot of the big firms have deployed so much capital downstream and the the venture ecos the venture capital flow is so clogged now at exit and growth capital it's trickling down into a's there actually is from what i'm hearing from some of our co-investors and later stage partners is they typically like writing series a checks but everything's so clogged up that they're going earlier and earlier Hmm. now so they're starting to play in the seed rounds they're starting to play in that pre-seed plus kind of area. I think where it gets really tricky is pre-product, pre-revenue. I think those companies are probably still struggling the most. But if you've got a solid founder, if you've got a product of some sort with some sort of traction, there's going to be an institutional investor that's comfortable playing in, in your space. Yeah, it's an interesting time, all these rounds bleeding together. Hi everybody, Rez Puri, CEO and founder of Product.ai. We're helping product teams develop software faster. We're a generative AI company, and we've been dealing a lot, talking to investors this past year. There's a big hype cycle behind it. Everybody wants to get in. We're building picks and shovels, but there are all these different AI companies out there. It's really hard to differentiate, right? OpenAI is the biggest one. If anybody watched like the dev day today, lots of really cool tools came out from OpenAI. What are your thoughts on generative AI companies, uh, especially like as it relates to being very niche compared to something like OpenAI? Yeah, I think one um, one thing I would say is being focused less on and maybe I've always thought that being less focused on the coasts, we're not seeing as much of the like deep tech when it comes to AI. I could be wrong, but that's my tech my take and. If there are like deep tech AI founders in the room, <laughs> please let me know. I'm very curious, like what brought you to Austin specifically. So the way we think about AI more is with existing portfolio companies. Everyone's trying to figure out a way to incorporate AI. To your point, and is it becoming commoditized? So we we really challenge founders to ask, like, are you doing this because it solves a customer need, or are you doing this because you're you think it's cool, or the customer thinks it's cool, but doesn't actually want to pay for it in the long run. So that's more of how we're seeing it as a seed stage, mid, middle of the country focused firm, is just really asking hard questions around how much is really necessary to incorporate AI into existing portfolio companies. The other thing that I think is interesting, which we are not experts in yet, but I hope to know more learn more on soon is actually how AI can help internally, like say with internal tools to make our companies more efficient, make their processes more efficient. They can save money from hiring even like one developer that can make a huge difference in the life of a startup. So those are more of the angles I'm looking at and when it comes to AI, but we're not looking, like I said, probably like directly at like the deep tech investing. I don't think we could really play with those valuations, unfortunately. how do you think about defensibility? Like once, you know, say you even have a, a breakout software company, everyone's like, oh gosh, that's a great opportunity. Let's go after them. Like how do, how do you look at that at your stage of, of as far as like, how do you? How defensibility do you of AI specifically? Well, uh, or just like- I would just say like of companies in general. It certainly applies to the AI thing and that there's so many people coming into the space and trying to compete. And it's like, yeah. how, how, do you, how do you, you know, walk the door and lock it behind you? 
I don't, I don't know if I do. I've never like heard that phrase before, so I'm trying to make it make sense. Yeah. But I think yeah. I know your question. <laughs> How do you like pick companies that don't get beat by competitors? Right, know? right. Yeah, I think especially at the seed stage, it's really tough, right? Because almost every company has a competitor. If they say they don't, like just start Googling, you'll probably find them. <laughs> right. I think for us, the big bet, again, comes back to the founder. It's what we call like product or excuse me, founder market fit. So betting that your founder is going to have the better connections when it comes to distribution or go to market, betting that your founder has some sort of relationship edge, has some sort of like knowledge set on the specific customer they're going after, that's going to be better than, than yeah. the guy sitting next to them. And so that's really, really key, especially when you're investing so early and there's not a ton of data to benchmark against amongst early stage companies. So it's like a you know, founder that brings unique set of relationships, some unique insights that like you can't you just go buy. Or right, go buy. right. The other thing I would say is just like speed of development is really important too. So it's not only when it comes to the CEO, but often that CTO or technical player, how fast are they able to iterate on the product or deliver or hear customer feedback and respond. Right. Those are two, two big elements we look when we're thinking about how are, how are they going to stack up to this competitor in five years. Yeah, awesome. We time for one or two more questions. Anybody? Hi, I'm, on a, I'm with a team at uh, Going VC here, and my name is Sina. So at Going VC, one of our primary aims is to help people break into the venture capital industry. And on that note, actually, I'd love to learn a little bit more about your journey breaking into VC, what that experience was like interviewing with the general partners, and whether or not their their intentions were clear in terms of how you wanted to support their team or was there an element of you introducing formulating a job description oh yeah interesting yeah so i would say when i realized that i wanted to pursue it was me not like stumbling into venture anymore and it was me like being being more purposeful and like intentional about going down that path. The first thing I did was just like talk to a few like friendlies in the ecosystem that I had worked with at CTAN, just asking like, hey, if you were hiring at the time, I was like, if you were hiring a senior associate, like, would you even look at my resume <laughs> type of thing? So I got some interesting feedback there, all of which was fair, especially given like the types of firms I was talking to. But I got the, the gist of the feedback I got, which is true, is that you would have a really good network and be really good at this from a business development standpoint, but we're not sure if like technically you have the technical expertise. And I think in terms of technical expertise, I think a lot of it came down to like financial modeling. Like I do not have an investment banking background. I don't have an MBA. I didn't work for a consulting firm where I was in spreadsheets all day. That and or like I didn't have like a, a specialty. I wasn't an expert in any one particular technology area. So that's a lot of the feedback I got. Hence why I was, uh, when I was at the army, I was really trying to figure out like, should I go down one of those paths where I was suggested to, to be falling short? So th that's how I started, just like poking around in the, in the industry and getting feedback. I really strongly considered getting an MBA. I was about this close. I put down a deposit before I got my, <laughs> before I got my offer from Firebrand. So I almost did it. Glad I didn't, which is a whole other topic. Once I got, the, yeah, once I actually started interviewing with Firebrand, I feel really fortunate to have found a good culture fit. Our, the interviewing process did not feel like interviews. It felt like conversations. 
I was pretty upfront with them when they initially sent me, to your point, like a job description. It was like a handful of bullet points. And to me, it sounded like they just wanted someone in Austin to send them deal flow, like a BD or like a venture partner, venture partner type of role. And I wrote back pretty explicitly like, hey, I think I'd be good at this, but unless it's on your investment team, like I'm not gonna be happy. So like, call me, call me if there's like a chance to be on the investment team. And they wrote back and they were like, no, 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 it's on the investment team. So to your point, they didn't really have a job description. I think at a small team like Firebrand, I don't think they were exactly sure of the seniority of team member that they were looking for. I think they, they really knew they wanted someone in Austin. And I, my understanding is that they were pretty open from like associate to partner level where they just wanted to find the right person that was in Austin that had the network. Again, come, it comes back. <laughs> the things I was told by other firms I'd be good at, like turns out that's what exactly what they were looking for. Um, so for me, it was very conversational. I don't think I helped shape the job description per se. In fact, I went back and looked at it recently and I, I never really got a job description beyond those like bullet points that I received. Um, so I just went for it from day one. I was like, I think VCs like do source deals. So I'm gonna go talk to a bunch of companies. So I just attacked it from a perspective of what I thought they wanted. And luckily I, I got it right. And, and they were very open with feedback along the way, which was helpful. But, but yeah, I just got lucky. Every couple of weeks we'd have conversations until it got to an offer. Yeah, yeah, smooth. Yeah, I, when I've <clears throat> interviewed associates for Capital Factory, I've found it you know, pretty frequent to find people who have the technical knowledge to get into VC. And there's just a lot of people that got their MBA, are on Wall Street, have that background. And that is the commoditized part of it. Like that's the definition of the MBA. It's like. But like really what I'm looking for, and we're hiring in Houston right now, we're about to put out offers, like someone that's like spent the time to belong to the community. <clears throat> and I think even if you live in a city, you cannot, it's easy to not belong to the community or not engage and immerse yourself. You can phone it in, you can like show up to the panels, say hi to the person you want to see and leave, or you can, you know, show up every day like Kurt has. Kurt's on the 16th floor every morning <laughs> working. I see him, we, we pound fists, like, like pretty much everyone in here is like in the community. And it does, it's like one of those things that doesn't just pay off immediately like sometimes right. it does like sometimes it's really big but that's like the big moment it's more of like you know years and years of like knowing people and putting goodwill into it then it's like all of a sudden you start to like really reap the benefits know. yeah and it's hard to find those people that have yeah. that like deep connection what i would say too is i think um it's stage specific so right at a pre-seed and seed stage fund yeah like having a network is right. huge not that it's not later stage but you don't have to have the typical like investment banking yeah as and, you or go MBA. further it's like more. once you get further down the capital life cycle it becomes more important to be able to help your companies build a model or build the exit scenarios when i'm investing when it's like three people and they've got two customers modeling exit scenarios isn't so important so i agree with that and i would also say yes but we're also like typically investing very you and i are investing very early in the the funding cycle yes so. Yes. The skill set needs to, to change as, as you get later now. Awesome. Well, Claire, thank you so much for joining us, and congratulations on your success, and it's been an honor to watch you on the path to partner. Thank you. And I'm excited to see what, what the future brings for, for you and, and the whole ecosystem. Same. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you all for coming. Yeah, thank you.
Thanks for listening to this episode of Austinpreneur. Don't forget to check out capitalfactory.com to learn more about us and join our community. If you have thoughts about the show or ideas on how we can work together, reach out to me directly via email, nickspiller at capitalfactory.com. Shout out to the Capital Factory Dream Team for making this podcast possible and special thanks to Aaron Handworker who masterfully recorded and edited the show. Come back next week for a whole new episode.